This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is British interior designer Sophie Ashby. A member of the UK's rising generation, Sophie has achieved widespread attention for her colourful and eclectic projects. During COVID, she got even busier, opening Sister, a retail brand, and United in Design, a non-profit that seeks to address the lack of diversity in the British design industry. I spoke with Sophie about why shipping furniture from the UK is cheaper than buying it in the US, whether RH can succeed in England, and why being brutally honest with clients is tough but worth it. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Leloy believes that the home should be both a place of refuge and inspiration, which is why their fall rug collections were designed for spaces worth savoring. There are stunning new handwoven rugs and family-friendly power-loomed pieces, many of which are in stock now. Explore all that's new at leloyrugs.com slash new. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com slash new. And stay in the loop by following them on Instagram and TikTok at at leloyrugs. This podcast is also sponsored by Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth's luxury bedding helps people sleep. Made from premium, highly sustainable viscose bamboo, its bedding is super soft, Comfortable, eco-friendly, and temperature-regulating, so people sleep more comfortably all year round. It's no wonder the brand made the list of Oprah's favorite things. Listeners to the show can save 35% on cozy earth bedding, loungewear, pajamas, and plush bath towels by going to CozyEarth.com and entering the code BOH. I wanted to set things up for listeners by first talking about this amazing space where your shop and your office are are currently housed, right? This grade one historic property, which I want you to explain to us what that means as well. But the but the blue coat school where you where you are, I want to have listeners understand so they understand where your office and shop are. And it also I think is a, a great entree into who you are. So tell us a bit. So we as a company are nearly nine years old. And for the first eight years, we're in a pretty uninspiring, but highly functional kind of just shared workspace type building where we rented a box. And it was probably about 2019 that I first started looking for somewhere. So I was getting a bit desperate and was using this search agent um, called Stephen Kane to help us find a space and negotiate on on Chilton Street on these on these few units that I found and we just couldn't couldn't get the right deal. So it was just one of those moments where it was you know the search agent sent me the particulars. He said this is not in the area you're looking for. It doesn't really fit the brief in terms of what you've told me you want, but look at it. It's so special. And so. And the Blue Coat School is a grade one listed old school, allegedly designed by Sir Christopher Wren in 1709. It's ancient and so beautiful and was designed as a school for the poor. It's got this lovely little statue of a schoolboy in a in a blue coat yes. um, on the front yeah. outside. It's so sweet, yeah. Um, and it's owned by the National Trust, which is our like heritage uh, trust in this country that own many of the... Um, historical houses and homes and buildings so it's honestly like beyond my wildest dreams of the kind of quality of architecture and space I ever thought that we'd get hold of and it was just one of those serendipitous moments um it's a small operation at the moment and growing well and as a business going well but um yeah just baby steps so it's wonderful yeah, it's an extraordinary space, and I would I would imagine an inspiring space to to come to every day when when one's field is is design and and creativity. Absolutely, I think as well. 
as a business coming out of COVID and trying to get everyone to come back into the office when everyone was a bit scared and really got had gotten used to working from home and it was a very big carrot to get people to come back because we've intentionally put the team in the loveliest room we it's not like everyone's squirreled away downstairs um everyone is reminded how special it is umpteen times a day you mentioned about sort of coaxing people to come back to the to the office something that many companies are are still wrestling with or or, or trying to figure out has your team now finally all returned and does that it does it feel a, a little bit more normalized now or it does i think we're in a really good rhythm um we do everyone does 3 days in and and then 2 days at home it's all changed so much and we're working towards a world where everyone just works on a laptop whether that's here or at home um and then we'll always have a few desktops for people who need to do like drawing packages or have a bigger screen for a few days but i think it's a really healthy balance and we introduced a lot of new kind of company employee benefits and it was just such a good refocus to think about us all and how we live our lives and the work life balance and mental health and well-being so we're trying very hard as a company to to do all of that whilst at the same time you know it's a sort of inescapable fact of interior design that it's it's something that you work on as teams it's a very tactile physical thing we've got two huge sample libraries of materials that we use and need to play with all day long you know we've got juniors who need training up we've got clients who we need to present to and so it definitely is is something that we need everyone to come in to do for the majority of the time but we do all understand now that if you need to just get your head down and work on a proposal or a presentation on your computer or something like that then you just getting on with it at home being able to put a load of washing on or whatever in the background is completely fine we can make that work and i think in this current employment market you know it's, it's definitely an employees market right now um and we we seem to slightly always be hiring because there's always flux now that we're around 18 20 people um there's always someone who's going off on maternity leave we've got someone who's moving to australia we've got someone who's <laughs> having a career change you know um sure it's always something and so we seem to slightly always be on the lookout um for talent and it's those kinds of perks and that that work-life balance of being able to do hybrid working, which I think attracts people. Well, in fact, it's just it's just the most basic given. I think we'd be really um, unusual if we weren't offering all of that. It's it's you know it's the right thing to do, and it's sort of the bare minimum now. I do know of a few studios who get everybody to come in five days a week. And I think they're really struggling with staff retention and things like that because the world's changed. I agree. And 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 almost overnight, the, the expectations are, are just as you described. And we do here in the in the States, so Business of Home has a, a job board and it is full all the time and, and people are constantly, I, I mean, and pull, people pull me aside at cocktail parties. No, Dennis, really, seriously, can you help me find mm. a mid-level interior designer for my firm? I mean, yeah. it's... That's just a regular conversation, and it's and it's hard because. And you and I talked about this a little bit in in our previous conversations. But some people find it easier to go out on their own these days, yeah, right. And and also in the states, and I wonder if this is the same in the UK. The skill set that interior designers have turns out to be a highly desirable skill set for lots of different fields and and kinds of jobs right mm. designers tend to be very organized <laughs> creative thoughtful and and so firms of, of of different kinds are hiring away those those designers and that's that's what we've certainly found here in the in the US is they've just left the industry in some cases oh that's interesting i haven't heard of that that much here but you're right it is a very sort of transferable skill set We've had a lot of people want to go freelance um, mm. and, and have that freelance lifestyle. That seems to have never been so appealing. And I think 
it's quite high pressure and high stakes with what we do and deadline driven and clients, um, you know, one would hope are always just delightful, but sometimes not so much. <laughs> Less so. <laughs> it's we so find odd. Sometimes, sometimes huh. they are just not so delightful. Um, and that's all quite wearing and grueling when you're at it mm. all, all year, every year. I, I think, again, not making another great generalization, but my understanding is in the US people work kind of harder in that they um, have less holiday and um, certainly in somewhere like New York I think the culture of working late and all those kinds of things is a bit worse than in London but it's not easy I mean it's never that easy being an employer to be honest and for sure the hardest part of it is is the people and and Mm. the maintaining and development and growth of talent and and because it's all about your team and and the people that you work with. And we're so lucky at the moment. It's one of those moments where I probably should touch wood, but I kind of look around and think, oh, my goodness, I think everyone's actually quite happy and quite good, (laughs) not going anywhere. And we've almost, we've got one more position that we're hiring for. And once that's filled, it feels like we're going to be in a good moment. But I expect in six months' time I'll be tearing my hair out because there'll be another wave <laughs> of flux and change. And and as you were saying earlier, I mean, and we should tell people a little about your firm and how you got got started because your your firm has actually grown in in, in size quite quite considerably over, over the recent years. Yes. Um, well, it started with just me and a laptop in 2014, and word started to get out, and I got a few more clients and. It all grew very organically from there. But for the first, uh, perhaps first four or five years, we were always hovering around six people, I think, six, maybe eight by the fifth year. And that felt really good and manageable. And that's when you feel like a little family and, you know, you all have lunch together and um, (laughs) you, you don't need to have endless meetings because you're all in the same room. And then we kind of grew a bit to 12 to 14 for a good few years pre-COVID. And that was that was nice and that was manageable as well. And then COVID, we sort of plateaued for probably a year while we just tried to understand what was going on in the world. And then we got really busy, as did most interior designers I know. And so we grew a bit to meet the demand. And as I say now, we're about 18 full-time. I believe we're 24 at the Christmas party this year, including freelancers. And it does feel a bit big. I know that isn't actually that big. And, um, you know, I know lots of designers in, in London have hired 70. Well, not lots, actually, but there are a good few really prominent mm-hmm. companies who I'm friendly with who've got 70, 80 people just in London. Mm. Just feels... Can't even imagine. Yeah, it's unmanageable. Uh, 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 not un, unimaginable <laughs> and unmanageable. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's, a, um, it's both. It's, it's both. both as it's just a lot. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think we'll probably, we will definitely stay where we are. We won't get bigger. We can't fit more people into our building without really compromising how we've laid the space mm. out. And that was a really intentional move. I'm a very ambitious person and I like moving forward, but I also don't like having endless room for possibility in a way. It's good to have some restrictions and and setting a restriction like that, I think, was a real comfort in a way to just just decide, no, you know, I, I really have always said that I don't want to have a huge company and I mean it. But if you if you if you're in an environment, a work or office environment where you could just accidentally swell all the time, I think you could just blink and turn around and realize you've got 40 people, 50 people and an HR department and all the rest of it. So it was quite an intentional restriction that I put on myself and the business because it focuses the mind and, and it and it helps you remember what your values are and what the whole point is. And the whole point is to just work on really beautiful projects for nice people and not too many of them at one time and work with a great talented bunch of people and, and do it all kindly and nicely and, you know, make people happy. That's the vision. Or at least how it starts out until you <laughs> discover what those clients are really like. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> oh dear. It's just, it's because it's the end of the year, Dennis. It's just everyone, right. we're, we're yes. exhausted. 
<laughs> yes. No, 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 of course. It, it's been an exhausting year. Yeah. And I always found it so hilarious having worked in many different parts of the of the home world that clients would say to me, all, all of these uh, bathroom fixtures have to be installed in my house for my Christmas party yeah. that we're planning, right? And I'm saying, okay, well, that's ridiculous. This is not going to happen. These are marble mosaic floors. They could run six weeks late, eight weeks late. You cannot plan your holiday party no. around your, your home coming together in a reasonable fashion. And yet- that was always the expectation this time of year. Oh, we ordered the dining table. It's absolutely going to arrive in time for Christmas Day. No, no, it's not. I know. Right? I keep thinking to myself that something has gone wrong along the line of the process where clients tell us how much they want to spend and when they want it done by after they've given you the brief and the scope. And I always just sit there thinking, what am I meant to say in response to the fictional timeline and budget that you've just given me? Why don't you wait instead for me to tell you how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost? Yes. But it keeps happening where someone will just, I don't know if it's a sort of trust thing. Sometimes it's a cultural thing, but those initial conversations with clients, it's such a terrible way to set up a project, to get excited about a project, to discuss the design, to be given the brief, and then to be told, I want it done for one million pounds and I want it done in nine months. Because then I will have to respond saying, based on the brief you've given me, I'm afraid it's going to cost 1.8 million pounds and it's actually going to take 18 months. And then they just start off disappointed. And it's very hard to kind of pull it back. And I think in their own head, psychologically, the whole way through the process, they think this is costing too much and taking too long. But as I say, it's just bad vibes to begin a project feeling like you're disappointing someone based on their own creation of timeline and budget and not helped by the fact that everything is more expensive and taking longer these days. Right, exactly. And and while clients understand that to a degree, and there's certainly been enough written and, and talked about with all of that, but it it's still, they don't fully understand. And well, as you say, when you try to explain to them, no, no, you'll be, you'll be amazed actually how much this costs now and, and how much longer it's going to take. And there's a shortage of workers and there's supply chain issues and there's just the host of everybody trying to do this all at once, which was part of what happened, of course, yeah. in all of this, right? It's, everybody wanted their houses done. Everybody yeah. wanted to travel, all these things. Everybody wanted to do it all at once. And, and of course, the system got clogged or jammed or everything got more. But you can, you can tell that to people, but it's still hard for them to understand. It is hard. And I just as a person, I seem to have a very straightforward, honest approach to dealing with conversations in life. And nine times out of 10, clients appreciate that, you know. But um, it does put some people off, it, the straightforwardness. I think it's a, it's a hard one. It's kind of how do you, when you want a project and you want to win it, we often have these conversations with the directors in my team where we think, well, they don't really want to hear that now, so maybe we shouldn't say that. And then we always say that. We always say the thing. We're always honest and straightforward. But I'm not sure that that's what everybody does. And it does bite us on the bum sometimes because we end up looking either expensive or like we're really sort of bleeding the fun out of the early stages <laughs> but I don't know maybe it's just a practical solutions part of my brain is always interested in setting things up like that it, it makes for a better experience for everyone overall I think of course and as you've talked about you're a you're a people pleaser and you, <laughs> right? you you want to keep people happy yeah I think the phrase is desperate people pleaser actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth has changed the way people sleep. Its bedding collection offers a variety of luxury pillows, sheets, blankets, and more. Named one of Oprah's favorite things in 2018, Cozy Earth's best-selling bamboo sheet set is temperature-regulating and incredibly soft. Snuggle up with Cozy Earth at CozyEarth.com and get 35% off with the promo code BOH. And now, 
back to the show. And I'm curious, and, and you and I talked about this a little bit, some of the differences working in the in the UK, you've recently had the experience of learning about some of the complexities of the American market. But mm. in England, for example, Chelsea Harbor and, and other places where designers uh, are, are sort of going exclusively to some extent, I can't remember if Chelsea Harbor lets consumers come and, and shop freely. They don't love that happening, I don't think, but, right. but they're not they don't, they don't embrace that, <laughs> yeah. if I recall. Yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't give you an electric shock if you show up, but <laughs> yeah. they don't, but they don't love it. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, in the, in the US, we're always grappling with this to the trade only model mm. that we're trying to put around big fabric houses mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the, a lot of the kinds of businesses that are in decorative centers and and design centers and have showrooms. And sometimes we hear from our English counterparts, oh, well, we do it a little bit differently in the UK. People can buy fabric on their own and often do. And But then I talk to the British companies and they say, oh, that's really such a small part of our business. Yeah. It's really not. Right? I mean. Yeah. I think it is a really small part, particularly the fabric houses. A lot of the very high-end furniture makers and antiques dealers have really beautiful showrooms and that's very much open to the public and for trade but yeah I think working in the US it was just there was the the awful shock of the exchange rate from pounds to dollars it was significantly more expensive for the same thing there than it would be here Mm. Uh, which I don't think for some reason we were expecting. And then the other thing was the cost of having things made, furniture made, so upholstery and curtains and cabinetry. Not only was it incredibly difficult to find those suppliers and makers, um, I think they're really few and far between, particularly in San Francisco. So we again, we ended up mainly using LA-based companies and there was the example of this bed, which we designed, which is a really simple bed. I mean, we were supplying the fabric, just really a great big piece of upholstery that in the UK we would hope um, at trade to cost four or five thousand pounds, six thousand pounds at the worst. Um, and we'd expect it to take eight weeks to make uh, on average. And we started getting these quotes. The first one I got was for twenty six thousand dollars. And I could not believe it. And I was mortified to tell the client. And so we got three more quotes and they were all more expensive. And I ended up having to say to the client, listen, this is the cost of the bed. I, I, I just don't know what to say to you. It's, it's <laughs> utter madness. It's not value for money. I wouldn't suggest you pay this. Um, and she was completely like, well, that's just what it is here. I mean, sadly, that's kind of what I was expecting. I'm not in shock. And so... There was just a real, some really big lessons to learn. And what, what it has highlighted is there's just massive opportunity for us basically out there because I think we can offer a lot more value for money. Even shipping things from the UK and Europe, uh, having things made here, by the time you factored in shipping and duty, it's still a better deal for us to, to bring things over. And we have such a, a larger selection of antiques and we're able to curate that was the other thing we found a bit difficult with um and this is only talking about california and this is only talking about the research that we were able to do for this project but there's a bit you know that californian look which i love but isn't really my look um Mm. is so prolific and, and popular that almost every shop is obviously riding that wave and so if you want something different and for this particular apartment I wanted lots of Italian and French mid-century kind of 40s 50s a bit of art deco I wanted some more ancient French Louis the whatever type stuff so I wasn't really able to find all of that there whereas you can find that here and particularly in France and Belgium and stuff very very easily so it has made me wonder about doing more work in the US. I think there's real opportunity for us there. Um, and, you know, that's one string to our bow, I think, our ability to supply more variety, possibly better quality, or at least the same quality for less and maybe even quicker. 
which is extraordinary, really. Exactly. That 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 sounds so so counterintuitive. Yeah. To think that it would be less expensive for you and quicker too to fill a container from the UK and bring everything over. Yeah. But it sounds like that's how the math really worked out. I think it it kind of did. And then there's the other element of which which you and I have spoken about before. This the kind of historic architecture and. Mm. You know, it's our, I'm ashamed to say it's completely bread and butter for us to work on listed historic houses. Uh, You know, most of London's housing stock, particularly in prime central London and the kind of projects that we're doing, we're talking grade one, grade two, grade two star listed, really beautiful Georgian, Victorian, Edwardian, Regency, you name it, architecture. And uh, there's a real appetite, as far as I can work out, for that feeling and detail um, for homes in in the US, I think once I just sort of step over the British, perhaps slight snobbery around the fact that <laughs> yes, you know, you can just do that. It's actually just so liberating, and there are no restrictions, and you can just no. If you if you love that kind of house, and when you go on holiday and you just love a Tuscan villa so much that you want your home in California to be a Tuscan villa. I mean, it's totally logical. So I think that's really exciting as well. Uh, and a real opportunity for us based on our experience. And we do a lot of work in Paris as well. And I mean, that's even better. I probably shouldn't say that. But, you know, the projects we're working on in Paris is like even more glorious. Um, you just walk into those apartments and think, right, and just pop a chaise long in the corner and it's done because this is just exquisite you know parquet flooring and french doors and old glass and not even reclaimed original um, parquet flooring and marquetry and stuff it's just heaven on earth so (laughs) yeah it's uh it's it's an opportunity for sure well america so america's all about reinvention and 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 sort of making your own your own way i live i live in a very funny little town uh that a, a well-known american interior designer grew up in and one day when he and i were talking about it he said oh well they made bronxville is where i live and in bronxville there are homes massive homes multi-million dollar homes of all different time periods and styles yeah. and you know american entrepreneurs went through the castle period where they just wanted to build themselves a small castle and then they went through the French chateau period and they couldn't get enough reclaimed wood from right from old chateaus but hilariously we have no problem with that here and so I know which is we'd love for you to come to America and bring (laughs) over your your Georgian and Edwardian sensibilities maybe uh, we can leave the Edwardian but yeah (laughs) (laughs) well I mean but they're they want that. America yeah, wants that. I know. They even want Jacobean, I hear, which I think is not <laughs> our finest moment. <laughs> I'm always curious if when you think about that, I mean, are there are there English brands there that we don't have as much here in the US that we have access to? Or I feel like a lot of the big fabric houses, they have the, the same yeah. collections in the right in the UK that they do in the US. But and one of our big Furniture brands here, RH yes. Restoration Hard, right, is is coming to conquer Europe. They they think yes, in a great big I know. way. Uh, is that going to play well there in your mind? Does that? I have no idea. I went to the Restoration Hardware mega store in San Francisco and just got the giggles. I just. <laughs> I just, what do you mean? Tell me, tell me about just, that. I don't know. The whole thing and the music and the beautiful woman greeting you and the scale of everything and um, the sort of repetitiveness of it as well. I don't know. I don't know. It might do well with our international purchases or owners here, but it's not very mm. British as style to kind of one-stop shop it you know we're all about eclecticism and layers and eccentricities and playfulness I think as a nation when it comes to interiors we I like to think that most of us don't want to take it that seriously and there's a sort of seriousness sometimes to those big brands which I think is a bit lost in translation yeah so 
I expect they've thought of that and they're adapting it to suit this market, I'm sure, and working with perhaps British consultants and things to make it also just the scale of everything you know the old the old age issue of our houses here being so significantly smaller the pieces of furniture just so enormous that they'll all need to be scaled down um, to suit London living Um, and even countryside living here most of our clients who've got country homes you do get some very grand ones, but in the most part, it's some iteration of a kind of cottage, even if it's quite a big cottage. And therefore, the rooms are quite small with low ceilings and a bit wonky and um, <laughs> higgledy-piggledy. Um, but no, something about that shopping experience gave me the giggles. <laughs> I'm sure it'll do very well. What do I know? But on the other side... BDDW have just opened here, and that yes. I can see doing phenomenally well. Uh, because, well, but then I'm biased because I love it, and it doesn't make Do me you? giggle. It makes me smile <laughs> and makes me uh, feel love in my heart. You know, I just think that is a, one of our industry's most special brands, and I love the story, and I love. All of the sort of other things that they do. I was recently given a mug by them in in sort of celebration of the the opening of the store here, and I am obsessed with it. I, I look at this mug <laughs> every day, and it's so thin and lovely. This china and porcelain. I don't know how they did it, and it's just so stylish. So I think that really appeals to the British sensibility. It's really beautifully made, handcrafted, lovely natural materials. It feels, to use that horrendous word, just so authentic and real and soulful. And Mm. um, I think that's what we're all about over here. But I think all of these imports and exports of brands around the world is just a good thing. Especially if we're able as a as a country or as a part of the world to hold on to our own spirit. I think the kind of globalization of trends and style is really depressing when everything just, whether you're in Dubai or New York or Sydney for interiors to just look the same, you know, unidentifiable global chic kind of as a, (laughs) as a look, I don't find very inspiring, but just more access to more stuff is, is good. And then, and then it's about curation and how you, you or your designer put something together to be, to be special for you or specific to that project and house, location, mood, feel. That's the skill. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in part because you had an art history background, but also because of your family and traveling back and forth, South Africa was a big influence on you growing up and 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 seems to have informed some of the some of the art that you that you love and gravitate towards and also some of the color mm. sensibility right and yeah. uh, and and it, and it seems it seems as if the media uh, the, the press seems to to love your your mix and sensibility and do you find that that's been part of what's helped you become no I'm amazed how many Americans seem to know you and follow you and you seem to be very much on the scene here in the in the US uh, as well as in the the UK obviously sometimes it's sort of made more complicated as a story than it really is because taste and style is really about listening to your gut instincts and following your heart on things and when you're trying to develop your own tone of voice and vision creatively, you know, that's all you've got. That's your toolbox. What feels good and what makes sense to you and those instincts, you know, whether you're running a business, which I do entirely by running on my instincts, relying on my instincts, I should say. And it's about references as well. That's why I'm always banging on about to my team. You know, in this country, we are so spoilt for choice where, Every day of the week, you could go and walk around some wonderful house, museum, gallery, you know, these epic examples of design. And it's just about going to these places, walking around, drinking it all in. And perhaps it's a painting that 
combines three colours in the detail of the fold of a woman's dress that make you think that's a really beautiful colour combination that I haven't thought of before. You know, that's how most designers work, I'm sure. Um, but we're just so spoilt here for, for choice. And I'm not interested in just churning out projects of a similar look. I'm interested in learning and changing in every project, trying to feel and be different. And we are able to do that for the most part, which is really exciting. I think I'd be quite bored trying to just recreate a signature look for the same mm. type of house over and over again, which is actually, I think, a much more profitable business model, by the way. <laughs> which, which, by the way, is actually what you absolutely should do <laughs> if you want to consistently yeah. make money and have clients know exactly what they're going to get from you. Yeah. You could just show them the previous so much project more straightforward. you've done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there are many designers who have made an incredible living doing just I know, that. I know. Right. I do think about it and then yeah. I just think, I know myself, I'll lose interest and start another crazy business doing something else out of boredom. And I'm trying to stop doing that a bit at the moment because it's my plate's a bit full. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind listeners about Leloy. Last year, Leloy launched a collaboration of rugs, pillows, and wall art with the renowned interior designer Amber Lewis, with a signature laid-back yet refined sense of style. This fall, Amber Lewis by Leloy debuts five new collections, including an extra plush-piled rug from India that will stop you in your tracks, a modern hand-knotted Moroccan-inspired design, and rugs made with Leloy's trademark cloud pile fabrication, which is as soft as it sounds. Visit LeloyRugs.com slash Amber Lewis. That's L-O-L-O-I Rugs.com slash Amber Lewis to see them all. And make sure to follow at LeloyRugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. You do have several different businesses and th and things that you've gotten yourself involved in. Some during during COVID here, you are moved into this great big new space during COVID, and you started a foundation during COVID, and you. So let's let's talk about that. So we should explain for listeners what Sister is, and it it's a business in and of itself. And so tell us about that. So yeah, Sister is our homeware business. We set up two years ago. It is called Sister because my little sister Rose is my muse in life for hmm. um, just her spirit of joyfulness, playfulness, liveliness, um, humor, everything about her. It just um, it inspires me. And I think it was a moment in COVID where I was feeling really uh, is the word burdened? Maybe not, but just heavy with um, with the weight of being an employer and having a business during a difficult time. I think I was basically in a moment where I was just looking to feel inspired and creative and looking for a lightness again because it was such a heavy time for everyone. I was also yeah. so pregnant, so physically very heavy right. as well. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Literally much heavier than normal. Um, um, so I thought I'd always wanted to set up a homeware brand. It's a it's a very obvious logical step for an interior designer to do so. So no major points for innovation there. But I just I'd always wanted to do it and it just for some reason felt like the right time. And then it kind of coincided with taking on this building, which had a requirement for it to be a retail space. And so my hand was forced in a way, but I I enjoyed it so much thinking about what that would be and how I would do it. So yeah, the idea was to appeal to a wider audience have products kind of high and low, affordable and investment, um, be really playful and creative with what we sell, not take it all too seriously, try and have a sustainable edge wherever we can and think about longevity and quality and reuse and recycling of materials and waste from our projects. 
And um, it's been really fun. For the first year, I definitely thought I'd made a terrible mistake and got myself into a whole business that I didn't really understand, which is such a different business model to a service-based company like Studio Ashby. But we then hired some people who didn't think it was so daft to have a retail (laughs) business model um, and knew how to do that. And it's going really well and growing quite quickly I mean it's still really small but um, I'm really pleased with how this year has gone and at the same time I set up um, this charity called United in Design with my co-founder Alex Dawley who's now a very good friend of mine so United in Design is essentially a charity that you subscribe to so you become a partner as a business and we have seven pledges and as a, as a business, you need to commit to do at least three of the seven pledges, and we will then help you deliver on those pledges. So hmm. from offering work experience in the form of career insight days to providing internships, paid internships, to mentoring, to kind of scrutinizing your recruitment policies and the, the channels through which you recruit and the messages you put on your job description. It's aimed to have a good spectrum that all different size of companies could get involved in. Um, we've got about 150 businesses who have signed up. We've got some really, really prolific, brilliant uh, companies um, who've, who've signed on. And... It just started with Alex and I having a conversation about what it was that we were going to do. And particularly me as the, you know, the employer of, at the time, 15 people and my with my own business. And when you are a small, agile business, you have the ability to, to change and do what you think is right. And, and, you know, there's no board of trustees and directors and things like that that you need to get changes in your policies through you can just make a decision and change it tomorrow and I think that's where we've been successful everyone was motivated to change and do better and we've just provided a map and the support in order to do that so um, let's say you choose the apprenticeship scheme mentoring and um, scrutinizing your recruitment policies the apprenticeship scheme is the jewel in our crown with United in Design. It's it's gone extremely well. We've so we've done it for two years, and essentially, again, it started Alex and I saying, "Right, I'd love to give an apprenticeship an opportunity, uh, an apprentice an opportunity, but I can't really afford to pay someone a full salary for a year as a as a business of my size. But I could definitely do three months, and I bet I could find three other companies who could also do three months." And so that's what our apprenticeship scheme is. An individual gets to spend uh, three months at four companies. They're paid a salary, a full-time salary, of, as a, equivalent to a junior starting salary in design for that year. And they hop from one company to the next. And each pool of companies is made up of typically a supplier or two, and then a design studio or two. So they're seeing both sides of the coin, as it were. And we've got uh, landscape designers, um, lighting designers, visualizers and CGI creators, architectural studios, um, rug suppliers, paint companies. So the, the mix of companies is really broad and you know we mean in the broadest sense that it's for the interior industry it's not just for interior designers this as as you know there's so many more players in the game than that um and in the first year we were able to create five apprenticeships and this year we were able to create six six and the sixth apprenticeship pool very excitingly this year was made up of five of our leading interiors magazines so we've got house and garden the world of interiors l decoration homes and garden and living etc who've all come together um to provide a apprenticeship position as a sort of media apprenticeship and that's going phenomenally well and in our first year those five apprentices are now all in full-time employment in our industry 
and yeah, we've we've kind of done it again this year, and we hope to do the same next year. And there's more demand from the businesses to get involved than we can supply talent at the moment. So we're really on a big hunt for for the talent who need the opportunities. But yeah, it's a gradual process. And I think to your comment about how it's going in the US, I I like to think, and but it would be hard for me to say because I'm, you know, now very involved in this issue that there is more energy and and passion for the issue here still. And it's something that we're all talking about and thinking about. And I'm mentoring um, four or five people and we all get together and talk together and everyone shares their issues and, you know, struggles. And it's by no means a problem solved. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to take some time. But Alex and I hope that there will be no requirement for United in Design to exist in 10 years' time. You know, it, it hopefully we can solve this problem and it, and it doesn't require us doing anything. It's just diverse as an industry. But there's a lot of barriers to entry. And I think, you know, someone like me who was privately educated and had pretty good connections. I was able to sort myself out with a few internships. I was able through a friend to work for her mum as my first job. It just opens doors for you, that kind of privilege and and life. And that's really common and rife in our industry. Um, And the problem will just self-perpetuate unless we open doors and allow people from with different backgrounds through from a different avenue to come and encourage them to come because it's also about how we present. It just makes me so happy to flick through latest issues of magazines and, and see all that change. Cause I think that's where it begins. You know, the, the young people doing a levels at school um, or deciding what to do at college Perhaps you might think, oh, maybe interior design is for me. Let me buy this magazine and have a flick through and see what it's all about. And if you see yourself reflected there, if you see someone black or of color, of Asian descent, whatever, you know, you're you're kind of looking for to see it. The important thing is to see it there and not think "Mm, that's not for me. There's tradition um, in some families, particularly black families, I believe, um, having spoken to quite a few people where there's still that pressure uh, from parents to go into more vocational, tried and tested kind of respected routes of work, doctor, lawyer, accountant, etc. And I think um, there is a notion that interior design is a bit risky, a bit like saying you want to be an actor or a musician or an artist, but it isn't. You know, it is a proper industry and you're paid reasonably well, much better in the US, it turns out, um, <laughs> as a salary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as as I've proved, you can set up a, a good business doing it as well. And so I think there are lots and lots of opportunities and it's in an industry that's booming. So, you know, we need more people to come up through the ranks um, so yeah, that's that's the focus for United in Design next year is to just try and get get more access into schools and young people and tell them about it um, because those conversations at school are so formative and it can just be those what that one conversation or one lecture or talk that you go to that opens your eyes to a whole new um, avenue and yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, without question. In wrapping up, Sophie. We've talked about the shop. We've talked about the foundation. Where do you want to go with all of this? You're you're someone who you've described again. You describe yourself many ways. One of them is <laughs> is, is is restless at at mm. times and and easily bored perhaps and and not wanting to do the same thing over and over again. So. Where does that take you as you think about this 10-year lease for your for the space? Oh, um, I actually think I've kind of added so many layers to the picture now that I, I do just need to settle down and deliver on United in Design and Sister. And Sister's a whole new opportunity in itself, really. So that's I, I'd like to spend more time on that. Um, 
as I mentioned before, no major goals of expanding Studio Ashby in terms of the scale of the business, short of seeing if we can do a bit more work in the US. Mm. Um, I, th- I think I also quite boringly now just am <laughs> of an age where I I'm just want to spend time with my family and my, my children and um, I do want to travel, but I I do feel a bit more grounded now and um, I haven't got any wild plans, which is probably a relief to all of those <laughs> who surround me. Around I think, you, exactly. Yeah, I always fantasize. I'll tell you what I fantasize about. I always fantasize about um, the world of hotels or sort of being a hotelier myself. Yes. Really appeals. Um My sister is a chef. She's a really talented chef. And we always joke that together we make the perfect wife with the homemaking and (laughs) the the cooking together. You know, we just like to have people around and create special experiences. So that is the sort of retirement plan. Mm. I haven't worked out how to do that without just losing all my money and um, (laughs) (laughs) regressing it as I changed the bed for the eighth time that week. Um, But yeah, I think there's something just so seductive and appealing about the world of hotels. Um, Perhaps it's more of a partnership with a, with a operator or hotelier. I I don't really know, but I'd, I'd really like to kind of have an opportunity to, design and curate that whole experience from what mm. you're eating to what it looks like to 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 everything every little detail so that that appeals but as i say i'm pretty sure it's not a very good idea so <laughs> hopefully i'll talk myself out of it i d- i don't know martin bruniski seems to have have made quite a quite a business for himself sort of designing every little little bit right of every of little hotels. detail exactly yeah. but the, the key is probably to be paid to do that rather than own it yourself <laughs> yes. um that might be that, that might be the trick but you and your sister it sounds like could have a, a wonderful time maybe a little b&b a little right a little, exactly i think it would just be such a lovely thing um to do so so maybe something like that one day but i'm in no hurry to do that and nor is she so um We'll see. In the meantime, I'm just going to focus on what I've created and look after it. Yeah. All right. Well, I love that. Thank you so much for for making the time to to spend with us. I I really appreciate it. And I've, I've so enjoyed getting to speak with you. Thank you, Dennis. And thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next week.